Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for The 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Captain's log, stardate 1710.0. The starship Enterprise is under heavy attack by an enemy vessel. Obviously, their weaponry is superior to ours, and they have a practical invisibility screen. Helm, hard over. Phasers, fire, point blank. I'm pointing out that we could have Romulan spies aboard this ship. The Earth commander will follow, he must. And when he attacks, we will destroy him. Permit me the glory of the kill, commander. Thomas, we have him. Move toward him. We can get just one phaser going. Phasers, Mr. Spock. Impossible, Captain. We have some of the old-style nuclear warheads aboard. Yes, Commander, but only for self-destruction. Place one in with the debris. Welcome back to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. This is Peter Holmstrom. I'm a screenwriter and author of The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek, out in stores right now. And this is Lisa Clank. 
I was a writer on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Star Trek Voyager, and I have a short story out in the current issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine. To paraphrase a truism, uh, ending is a very delicate time. In the early days of Star Trek, it was widely held rule that there shall be no overt references to the original Star Trek series. With the exception of the occasional pastor remark, there was no need to have watched the original series to enjoy the new series. This angered some fans, believing it wasn't Star Trek without Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly. While for a whole other generation of fans, Picard was their captain. Today is a new era, and it seems almost impossible to have a show or a movie not reference a million and one other things, chocked full of Easter eggs in the hopes of making the theater erupt with applause at the sight of them. The question currently in Hollywood is, will this applause last for decades? Statistically speaking, the Star Wars sequel trilogy only earned two to three times their budget, while the prequels and the original trilogy earned six to ten times their budgets, respectively. And for my money, I hear very few people talking about the sequels, except for when it comes to a two-dimensional argument over The Last Jedi. Star Trek, by all accounts, has found a nice middle ground. By blending fan service with compelling drama, as well as some startling visual effects, the new Trek has captured the hearts and imaginations of Hollywood. The trade-off is it can be hard to look back and imagine a time when all was new. Characters and villains were tried and tested, with some sticking and others faltering, with no expectations placed on the creators to mine a library of information to create a story. With the season finale of Strange New Worlds, the creators did a riff on the classic Star Trek episode, Balance of Terror, and imagined what it would be like if Christopher Pike was in command. We thought it would be an excellent time to revisit this classic episode and remember the beginnings was... Remember the beginning was the new Star Trek reached its end. Uh, a few weeks back, we had Ryan Britt on the show to discuss season one premiere of Lower Decks. But damn it, we felt that was too short to really have a good conversation. <laughs> so we wanted to invite him back. Ryan, thanks for being back. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be back. Do you remember the first time you ever saw Balance of Terror? I do. Um, it was in a marathon uh, that was on television in 1991. That was a top 10 fans voted marathon that I taped on VHS. And it was number 10, if I recall, because it was the first episode on uh, the two VHS tapes that I taped the marathon on. So I must have been uh, probably six years old. Yeah. Um, but whenever I was home from school, sick or whatever, I would always watch um, that marathon tape. And so I, I think I've seen Balance of Terror, you know, Close to 100 times, you wow. know what I mean? Because I'm 40 and I, I watched it, you know, probably 20 times when I was, you know, between being 6 and being 15. So, <laughs> but um, yeah, I watched Balance of Terror a lot uh, in preparation for the Strange New Worlds finale. I watched it while I was writing um, my book, Phasers on Stun, uh, mm -hmm. which is out now. Um, but yeah, I've seen it a lot. Um, so it, it's one that I can kind of quote from memory. Yeah. Would you say it's one of your favorites of the, from the original series? You know, I don't know if before now I would have ranked it that way. I, I would say it's one that's most familiar to me. If, mm -hmm. uh, if hard-pressed, I don't know if I would make it into my top 10, only because I would put all the silly ones in the top 10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm in a big like kick Like Wade of, Eden? Well, um, actually... <laughs> actually, yes. <laughs> the Squire of Gothos, uh, yeah. which was written by Paul Schneider, uh, who also wrote Balance of Terror... Uh, would might go in my top 10. Uh, I don't know. I was watching The Squire of Gothos recently, and I was just laughing so much how great it is. You know, I was I was a, a similar way as a kid, except I had uh, recorded a, a marathon of, of uh, The Next Generation, 
which was hosted by uh, uh, Jonathan Frakes at the time. And I just remember so vividly that there's a bit in there where he specifically points out on the map that you see of the Enterprise in engineering where the bathroom is at. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Um, but your marathon, was that the infamous one where like Leonard Nimoy apparently came really prepared and had like copious notes and then like Shatner just sort of walks in and it's just like, hi. I'm here. It's it's possible because there's a couple. There was a couple right. There was like one for the 20th anniversary, and then there was one for the. I think mine was the 25th anniversary one, and so I want to say, yeah, you're right that it was that one where Shatner was kind of um, not as professional. Yes. <laughs> um, I want to say that. Yeah, that seems right. I think it culminated in a behind the scenes sort of like upcoming, like Star Trek Six was coming out or right, something. Right, right. You know. Um, yeah, but that's that sound. That sounds right. I always remember. I, I love those those uh, marathons and and those things. You know, it feels like we don't. I mean, we obviously don't get those as much anymore. But like, that was such an access point for a lot of fans because there wasn't the internet, right? There wasn't the ability to engage with your fandom in the same way that there is today. So like, these marathons would allow you to kind of peel back the curtain a bit in a way yeah. that, that we just don't quite have anymore. It also kind of curated it for you, right? Like it made it. Whatever for whatever reason that was that felt kind of more canonical if it made it into that marathon. I think that like that Frakes marathon you're talking about. I feel like that was like only like a top five. Yeah, it was or a something. Top four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, so like Best of Both Worlds took up two slots, and like Relics mm-hmm. was in there or something. You know, like, <laughs> no, I, I, can, I can I can remember it exactly though. It, it started with uh, yesterday's Enterprise, and, or no, no, excuse me. It started with it, the Inner Light, and then it went to yesterday's mm-hmm. Enterprise, and then it did the two parter of, of the Best of Both Worlds. But world. isn't Rel- Relics wasn't on there? I felt like Relics. I, was I, on there. I only recall it being a top four. That said. I only could have recorded four episodes, so maybe it wasn't. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just like, skipped like, the first right, one. I'm, I'm saying that Balance of Terror was number 10 on this countdown, but I don't know, because I know on tape two, it's a piece of the action, which was the other one that I watched like over and over and over again as a kid, which really just informed all of my beliefs of like how uh, mobsters operate. Sure. You know? <laughs> like I was like I was watching the new season of Westworld. I don't know if you've seen it, but like they go to yeah. like they have like a they have like a 1920s land now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's such a missed opportunity to go like way bigger here and make it like way more like piece of the action. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I was really hoping they were going to go a little bit more piece of the action. That would have been fun. Uh, the fact that like no other Star Trek series. I mean, I know there was a pitch to do this, but like I would have loved them to to have gone back there or even just to have Voyager do like some mobster kind of episode. They could well, have yeah, had fun. With I that. think that Ron Moore wanted to do it right Once instead of Trials and Tribulations. They wanted exactly. to go to the mobster planet, and now all the mobsters have started to imitate Starfleet. So they were yeah. like. <laughs> Cosplaying. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it would have been. It was a fun idea. Who knows how that would have translated? I'm glad we got trials and tribulations, though. That for sure. But I think that Balance of Terror, though, I liked it as a kid because it was like a big. You got to see the spaceships doing stuff, mm-hmm. and I think that that's like a. You know, when you're a kid and you get the models and the toys. I remember getting like the models that had like the Enterprise and the Romulan Bird of Prey and the Klingon ship, and I thought that was all really fun because. Yeah, it it was. There's not very many episodes of the original series where you actually see other spaceships. Right. It's true. <laughs> you know? It's true. So I think the Balance of Terror is an early one where you're like, oh wow, this is awesome. Um, but yeah, let's just. I mean, let's just get right on into this here because we have lots to talk about about Balance of Terror. So, uh, listeners out there, we are watching again. Watching. Uh, Where's that? Season one, episode fourteen or fifteen, depending on how you count, of the original series, Balance of Terror, available on those excellent Blu-ray sets or on Paramount Plus. And we're gonna start it up here in three, two, one, engage. <laughs> Hello, 
Uh, we're watching here the remastered versions, but uh, it, uh, it still starts the same way. It starts with a ceremony, uh, one of the few times you see... I think it's the only time you see the chapel in the original series, isn't that right? Yeah, so I have with me today the um, James Blish... Uh, you can't even call it a novelization, adaptation. He goes, he goes to great pains to describe how non-denominational the, <laughs> the um, chapel is, but he, it's almost like he's throwing shade on it a little bit, Yeah, like, um, which is really interesting because, of course, he was wor- this was the first Star Trek uh, anthology that was published in 67, so he's working off of scripts. Mm-hmm. But it, the first line is, when the Romulan outbreak began, Captain James Kirk was in the chapel of the Starship Enterprise waiting to perform a wedding, uh, which is really cool because um, yeah. it really is. But yeah, in the new Strange New Worlds finale, Equality of Mercy, they put Pike in a what-if scenario mm-hmm. in which he is still the captain of the Enterprise in 2266. And um, as soon as he kind of flashes forward, he is performing this wedding. Um, so it's cool because it's the first moment I was texting with friends, like, when did you know that Strange New Worlds was inside of Balance of Terror? Was it when the <laughs> wedding happened or was it later? Um, but yeah, I always loved, it's very, it's a very tragic, uh, beginning because you, you, in, in the end, one of these, uh, one of these lovebirds doesn't, uh, doesn't make it. And so we are gathered here today with you, Angela Martin, and you, Robert Tomlin. Yeah, it's, um... You know, there's some conjecture. I'm, Ryan, I'm sure you have talks like this with your friends too, like I do. But it's like, is there such a thing as as religion in the 23rd century? Is there such a thing as money in the 23rd century? And there's a lot of back... And this is an example where you're like, no, there is religion because there's a chapel. And then, you know, all the yeah, constant well, references to people having jobs and shit. And certainly on Deep like, Space Nine, you know, there's both religion and money. You know, there's gold plus, yeah. plus latinum, and there's, you know, the emissary. And so I think Deep Space Nine really went all in on those concepts. One thing I want to say about that chapel scene that I really love, because I've rewatched this episode a lot recently um, in researching it for the Strange New Worlds finale, but also um, just because it's great, um, is that the background actors in that scene are so diverse. People always sure. sort of credit the original series. People are always like, oh, the original series did a great job with these, you know, with uh, George Takei George and uh, Nichelle Nichols. But you forget how diverse the background actors are, even in the first season. Like that scene in, in, in where the, the, everyone's sitting ready, ready for that wedding, it's not just white bread. It's so diverse. Yeah. And I just love that. And I, I always kind of like marvel at that when I rewatch the original series. And I, that, you know, that's important. And I was talking to um, the costume designer for Strange New Worlds, and she was pointing out how important it is that, like, all the background players have just as much life <laughs> yeah. as, 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 the, as, the, um, as the day players, so to speak. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of a tragedy in the sense that, like, I feel like whenever I watch the original series, as you're talking about with all these background actors, they all feel like they have, they're their stars of their own story. And that's yeah. something that... You can't really, that's not because of any direction. It's just because these people lived, you know, like they, they, it seems like they, they, they all have a sense of like hardness. And it's something that I lament about, like, let's just say, I'll throw a bit of shade at the new Star Wars series is that they all feel like just like LA just out of Whole Foods or something. And it's just, <laughs> they all look so soft. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> something that about, yeah, so this first scene here in the new Strange New Worlds episode, they block this intro identical, only it's Pike instead of Kirk. Hmm. So the way in which Anson Mount a- exits the turbo lift, talking to Uhura, now played by Celia Rose Gooding, talking to Spock, played by Ethan Peck, is identically blocked um, as it is in this episode. So it's something that's huh. interesting that, like, if you're watching Balance of Terror and then you're watching the season, the season one finale of Strange New Worlds, um, 
a quality of mercy, you'll be shocked by it that it's not just the dialogue. Yeah. That it's actually the way they they shot it, which I don't think an an episode a contemporary episode of Star Trek has ever really done. Um, yeah, I don't think for, so. You know where they've actually. Um, I always like this where the Remus has not been established, so they have Rom two mm-hmm. or whatever is like the other Romulan planet. <laughs> They're not quite yeah, sure. We, we'll, we'll, Rom, we'll put, We'll put yeah. it down to the uh, the, the <laughs> lack of communication at the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I love that though. That they this is actually like really interesting because this episode again it was written by Paul um, Paul Schneider who wrote this episode Squire of Gothos and also wrote um, uh, the Terratin incident from the animated series. But he is credited with creating the Romulans, and I love this history where they just say that like we never knew what they looked like. And I feel like that that's so realistic because if you were fighting aliens, why would they, they wouldn't necessarily need to show themselves to you. Yeah. Right? And so I just love that detail that they kind of, that Spock says here, you know, the Earth-Romulan conflict of a century ago. um, It creates such a great, rich bit of world building that the original series did gradually, right? Like they would throw in these these things. But um, yeah, it's just really great. Yeah, you, uh, Um, uh, we uh, on the, Main Trexperts feed, we had uh, Mark and Darren interviewed uh, Eric uh, uh, Jurgensen, I think is his last name. Anyway, he wrote like an unmade Star Trek film script for Star Trek 11, which would have dealt with the kind of Federation Romulan War. Um, and it's available online and it's it's a great script. But like, so to your point, it's it's just like, you know, this is, I mean, this episode is very nail on the head. It's, it's submarine warfare, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, his script for Star Trek Eleven was a bit more of like a Top Gun type thing. But in both situations, it's like, you don't have to, you don't have to show your, show your enemy, you show your face to your enemy at all. It's like, you know, the right. Star Trek convention of, of hailing frequencies open, it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it doesn't have to happen that way. Yeah, I guess I just mean that I like that Star Trek used to go for this kind of casual realism. By the time we got to the 90s shows, we had a lot of Star Trek history already. But that Star Trek does this thing that, you know, that other great works of science fiction do where they reference historical events that are still in our future. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like it's really mm-hmm. far out. You know what I mean? That they already had this war from 100 years ago with aliens that they never saw. And I just think that right. there's something really, um, really brave about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also really smart. And obviously when we find out that the Romulans look like Vulcans, like... It's a really cool budget-saving move, but also the, <laughs> the fact that they're introducing a new um, villain in this episode and that there's mm-hmm. a giant twist coming, is mm-hmm. it feels like something a contemporary TV show would do, right? Like a contemporary TV show would be like, okay, here's this really friendly alien, and then in the middle of the season, we're going to reveal that the biggest enemy might be related to him. And it's such right. a cool moment. And I, I don't know if Balance of Terror gets enough credit for just how... Um, how cool that is and how how sort of risky that is. Um, they didn't really do it with any other kind of alien species where they directly connected it um, with a major character. And then, of course, Spock is connected to the Romulans forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, too, it, it's such a good way of, of, of tackling the issue of bigotry at the time. And, yeah. and like, that just brings it to what Star Trek does at its, at its best. It's when it really pushes... Um, um, uh, uh, a philosophical issue into your face. And here it's like, you know, 
very influenced by by the events of the 1960s. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I know they kind of touch on this in the Strange New Worlds one, Ryan. But you've seen it. I, I haven't seen it. I'll confess. So, like, what? How do they tackle that in that episode? They they tackle it similarly. They don't have styles. They use one of their contemporary characters, Lieutenant Ortega's, which is played by Melissa Navia, and she sort of is the suspicious of the Romulans and suspicious of Spock having kind of looking like them. But they they. The episode, the Strange New Worlds remake is kind of less about the racism that Spock is going to experience. When they bring on the new version of Captain Kirk into that episode played by Paul Wesley, he sort of posits that the Romulans wanted us to know that the Vulcans look like Romulans in order to create conflict and bigotry, Hmm. which I think is a really interesting kind of twist, which is an imbalance of terror, right? right? That maybe like the Romulans wanted them to hack into that video feed because they know that the Vulcans are aligned with the humans. So that's something that Strange New Worlds adds to the um, to the canon, which is kind of interesting because it, it does also doesn't contradict it. Um, you know, it doesn't contradict way. it, but it also is interesting to think about how like Kirk in that episode is also saying that like bigotry and racism is still very rampant in the Federation, right? It's yeah. something the yeah. Romulans can't expect to work, whereas right. here, well, it's not, you know, yeah, and they do it a lot in Strange New Worlds where they kind of say that there's like still bigotry relative to they say it in um um and Benga says it in Strange New Worlds is like, you know, humans became united, but then we found new bigotries. Um so that kind of references the original series idea that humans aren't aren't bigoted towards each other. Right. But they are bigoted perhaps towards aliens, which of course we know in, in TOS is why Spock receives so much <laughs> so much racism. Um yeah. you know, how many aliens do they encounter in the original series that look exactly like humans? Um <laughs> you yeah. know, nobody nobody flips out. Well about let's that. go down Kirk's sex life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well I, I just mean like aliens where they like they don't even try, where it's just like the aliens in a piece of the action where they just, they're humans, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh you know so this scene is recreated in Strange New Worlds and they create a a new version of Hansen. Um who also has a son that Captain Pike is um, is aware of um, in an alternate timeline. But what's interesting about this scene is that they they again they block it and they recreate it beat for beat um, yeah. with um, Anson Mount as Pike and uh, Ethan Peck as Spock uh, and a uh, new actor as as um, as Hanson. Um, and uh, they even give Hanson the same little different. Uh, Starfleet insignia. Hmm. You know, the newer Star Trek shows have done this thing where they've kind of had a universal delta, but they've started in Strange New Worlds to say maybe other ships and star bases have slightly different little little badges, which I think is like a cool a cool little touch. Yeah, uh, that all the um, other Starfleet personnel don't quite have the same uh, little uh, little badge. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you see it? So this is really funny. So the Romulan ship um, is very iconic. We know the way that it looks, kind of like a flying saucer with like the two upswept nacelles. Mm -hmm. In the original script, it's supposed to look like a Starfleet ship. And the idea was that the Romulans had stolen a starship design. Really? And so the yeah, and so the way the reason why it kind of looks like it's got a little saucer and little nacelles like a Starfleet ship would have is that the original version of the script was that, was that it, and, and it retained in the James Blish um, adaptation in the book, in book form. Mm-hmm. So when Styles says in the, in the scene that comes up here, we could have Romulan spies on this ship. We know what their ships look like. We could have Romulan spies on the ship. Why does he say that? Well, mm-hmm. it's left over from a previous version of the script in which seeing the Romulan bird of prey looked like a modified Starfleet ship. And so 
style saying that indicates that we have lost, some kind of intelligence has been sort of compromised and the Romulans have stolen a Starfleet design. Um, obviously, that's cut from the final version of the episode, but little vestiges of it remain. Um, and that's why he accuses them of being spies before they know the Vulcans look like Romulans. Right. Um, but it's an interesting thing, because then if you think about the way that the other Star Trek ships are designed, you realize that the Bird of Prey does kind of look like a remix Mm-hmm. Of a Starfleet ship, and it like in the way that the Klingon ships don't, right? Right. Um, it is so, so interesting, is. though. You, yeah, I mean, you, you say that. It, it, I'd never thought about that before, but it makes so much sense. I mean, it's like you don't expect Styles just to be saying that every time they encounter a new alien <laughs> spaceship. Just, well, yeah, oh, so, we can have we can have spies. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, so, but it's, it's an it's an inexplicable line that's made explicable essentially by an earlier draft of the script. Yeah. But I, I kind of like the idea of imagining that it that it still kind of works in continuity because you could be like, because, you know, later the Romulans and Klingons are trading ship designs. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's not like a big deal with um, real space travel, right? Like the idea that designs could be stolen for mm-hmm. different spacecraft by different opposing governments and that that, you know, could could be a problem. Um, I, I So I think that it's fun that they reference that um, here. Yeah. Parallel course. Do you love the, I mean, the lighting here is just so great. It's also so fascinating to watch season one and two of Star Trek and then compare it to season three where the size of the crew just drops drastically. <laughs> <laughs> just because they, they, for very simple budgetary reasons, like here they could afford the extras and then season three they, just, they had less money. Yeah, no, they're, they're, the crew feels huge here. You know, like the, yeah. like, the, like the fact that like, you know, with Styles, you know, they've, they've also got multiple people manning the phasers, which I don't think happens in any other episode. No. Right, where Kirk is like, fire the phasers and then it goes down... Uh, to uh, where the phaser control room is and somebody else is pressing the button. Like, that's mm-hmm. very, you know, that doesn't happen in, no. <laughs> in subsequent episodes. Um, but this yeah, is really one of the few episodes where it feels like, oh, right, you actually need 150 people running the ship. Whereas, like, by the time of The Next Generation or whatever, or even in the original, like, Star Trek Three, right? It's like they have, like, seven people and, and they make yeah. some lines about how, like, we automated the ship. And it's like, really? <laughs> okay. Okay. Picking up communication, sir. But this feels very fleshed out, very, very full. Um, also, I don't think William Shatner has ever looked better as Kirk. Like he just looks so good in this episode. Yeah. So that's why yeah. a lot of people with they they so in the new episode, uh, Captain Kirk is the captain of the Farragut in in an alternate reality because he never took command of the Enterprise in the new Strange New Worlds finale. So during the events of Balance of Terror, this new Kirk comes in in the Farragut, and it's the Farragut and the Enterprise taking on the Romulans, which causes problems. But the new Kirk is played by Paul Wesley, and it's funny because I like him, and I liked him in Vampire Diaries. Oh, here's mm-hmm. the famous scene where we see the Romulans. But I'm not sure he's as, as uh, he doesn't, he, he's, I don't know, sure if he's as roguish as William Shatner. Yeah. I'll say that. William Shatner is so aggressive in this episode. Um yeah. Just telling them to fire blindly and just like he's taking so many actions so quickly. Um, it really is the crux of who Kirk is. It's just like he does things very quickly. This is such a great scene. Yeah. Revealing the Romulans. Of course, the Romulan commander is played by Mark Leonard, his first Star Trek role. Mm-hmm. More famous is Sarek uh, later on. Um, and a Klingon in the motion and picture. And a Klingon, yeah. yeah. He was up for... Uh, Spock, actually, because for a minute yes. it looked like Leonard Nimoy might end up walking away from the show because there was he wanted more money in season two and the studio wasn't quite eager to drop more money because yeah. they never are. But uh, Mark Leonard was then on the short list to replace him and um, he would have come at a lot cheaper rate. Yeah. 
Mark Leonard has said that he enjoyed playing the Romulan commander slightly more than Sarek uh, of his Star Trek roles because he felt that there was more to it. Mm. Uh, and there was more like sort of, dy- it was more of a dynamic role and there was more kind of uh, to sink his teeth into, which I thought was really interesting uh, because it's the first time that we have kind of like an enemy captain uh, that we kind of um, are meant to sympathize with. Mm-hmm. Um Partly because we sympathize with the fact that Spock looks like them and we like Spock, but then because we get into the Romulans' bridge and we see that the Romulan commander doesn't want to be carrying out this mission. Which is like, again, like Star Trek is so great. Like what other show at the time would have said, here's the evil people that are blowing up these star bases. Oh, and they're actually kind of feel bad about it and they don't they yeah. don't want to do it. You know? Yeah. It's such a it's such a great uh decision. Um and Mark Mark Leonard really uh, really pulls it off. Um, yeah, I think it's it's an element that like we it's hard for us today to really empathize with. I think Roddenberry and a lot of people on Star Trek at the time had been in wars, and they mm-hmm. understood that even their enemies kind of were sick of it. Like they they both they had that yeah. unity of like we don't know really why we're killing each other, and it sucks. And uh, whereas like today I mean thankfully I've never been in a war and I don't, hopefully never will be and it's um it's it's having that sort of like brothers in arms even when you're on opposing sides of things um it's not always something that we would immediately So there's think the of. famous bird of prey painted on the bottom of the Romulan ship yes um and then all the Romulans have helmets on except for the centurion who's the older uh older Romulan that Mark Leonard confers with and they have helmets on of course so they didn't have to do pointed ears right uh, for for everybody, um, <laughs> saving uh, that money. The Romulan centurion who uh, Mark Leonard talks to is a very very accomplished um, actor. Um, War Burton is his last name. I'm trying to remember his first name right now. Um, let me see if I can figure it out. Anyway. In the new version of this in Strange New Worlds, they flip it and they have a younger underling hmm. that um, the Romulan commander is having to kind of talk to. And the younger underling is kind of a jerk and sort of rats him out. Um, and it's implied that maybe in that timeline, the um, Weakness. it was flipped, right? That the um, that guy's uncle should have been there mm-hmm. um, and that, that maybe things wouldn't have been as bad. Um, had that had that occurred, um, but yeah, I really like this kind of older character that's conferring um, with with Mark Leonard um, and kind of like yelling at this younger guy. And um, I don't know, he's such a cool. He's uh, Mark Leonard's such a cool actor. Yeah, he's really good. <laughs> so, is this the first time that we had uh, a cloaking device, or had we had the Klingons used it before? No, this is the first time. Uh, John Warburton is this actor's name, by the way. I just remembered. Um, this is the first time that they do the cloaking device, which, of course, has caused a lot of problems. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, they kind of right, they kind of shrug their shoulders with the newer shows with Discovery and Strange New Worlds because they can just kind of be like, this is a newer, better cloaking device. Right. Which the original series kind of did anyway with the Enterprise incident by saying that there was an even better cloaking device that they were going to they were gonna get. Um but yeah, this is the first time. Because I think that's a great concept. Um, and again, you know, for the future, I mean, Im- again, imagine, you know, people who are in, in war right now, what, what what additional weapon would they like to have? You know, Cloak of Invisibility would certainly be one of them. It's also really essential to the plot of the episode because what the Romulans are doing is 
crossing over the border and not getting caught. And the way mm-hmm. they're not getting caught is because they're either leaving no witnesses or they're using the cloaking device. So it's something that they play with a little bit in the Strange New Worlds episode because they say, okay, the Romulans were testing the Federation and Kirk scared them because um, he gave them a bloody nose, basically. And the Romulans also had plausible deniability because <laughs> right. they were like on the other side of the neutral zone. But in the Strange New Worlds version, Pike is kind of like, hey, we got you on tape. Um, you know, mm. blowing up this star base. And so it kind of escalates it in this different way um, where Kirk is kind of playing... Kirk plays by the rules. He doesn't actually cross into the neutral zone here. Right. He actually does sort of like get the Romulans to reveal themselves. Um, I think that's really interesting. That's one of the interesting things about Kirk here is people are like, Kirk's such a rule breaker. Mm. And it's like, oh, he's just kind of... He's kind of just aggressive. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's like a... He becomes a rule breaker in like the films, right? But he's not really, like, as much of a rule-breaker as you think here. Him and Spock are obsessed with keeping the Romulans on our side of the neutral zone. Right. You know, so Kirk is going to run it right up to the to the limit as much as he can. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't actually break that rule. Bring it to the briefing room. Are you ready, gentlemen? I also love that we have, like, a classic Star Trek conference room scene in this episode. Um, where everybody has to kind of like sit around and talk about like what the ramifications things are. Spock yeah. is describing here that this, it's not just that the weapon blows things up, is that it kind of reduces their composition to being, you know, crummy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think is a cool idea, right? Like that it, it it's like a weapon that sort of makes, uh, makes everything sort of uh, worse than it was before. And I see Styles here in this scene that he kind of joins the regular cast and then uh, we <laughs> yeah. never really see him again, do we? Never do. It is funny how, like, season one, they, they don't really establish, as much as we think they do, they actually don't really establish the the, the layout, I guess you could say, of, of the main cast as we know it. And, you know, I mean, Shatner has talked many times and many of the other character, actors have talked many times about how, like, you know, a lot of, you know, like Sulu, Chekhov, whatever, they, a lot of them are, like, day players, right? They don't really... They, they, we think of them today as being, like, stars of the show, but at the time they were they were treated as, like... Yeah, you're here. Do your thing. Maybe you'll get a line. Maybe you won't. Yeah. Well, yeah, like uh, Booker Bradshaw, who played Mbenga in two episodes of the original series, you know, he was just in only two episodes. But what if he had been in 10? You right. know, yeah. w- would we have considered him to be as important as Yeoman Rand, mm-hmm. who isn't as in as many episodes as people think? Mm-hmm. You know, Nurse Chapel. Yeah, wasn't very important. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't mean, like Yeoman Rand. I really. Don't I like guess her. All, all I mean is that, like, for for fans, who, like you know, Styles, you know, is kind of written to be the character in this episode to do this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, but um, yeah, could he have appeared in other episodes? I always thought that the Captain Styles in Star Trek Three was supposed to be his dad. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Who sure. was kind of like, uh, how do you have a yellow alert in space, dog? Um, <laughs> I joke with I was joking with a friend of mine. Is like whenever I file my nails, I'm always like, <laughs> "How do you have a yellow alert in space, dog?" <laughs> uh, geez, funny. He thinks he can get away with warp drive filing my nails. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. On theories about a people we've never even met. I love Bones in this episode too. Like I just feel like that um, DeForest Kelly's performance in this episode is really great. He's really like freaked out, and he's a hu- big. He's a he's in his biggest humanitarian mode mm-hmm. um, and he, he when he comforts Kirk later in the episode kind of telling him that you know there's only one of each of us and that you know it, it, don't destroy the one named Kirk like you know kind of imbuing Kirk with the confidence that like you you're the guy 
to make this decision. And so this great scene, weakness is something we dare not show, is also recreated in Strange New World's finale in Equality of Mercy, where Ethan Peck quotes Leonard Nimoy exactly and says, if yeah. the Romulans retain this martial philosophy, weakness is something we dare not show. Because Spock agrees with Kirk that they have to attack the Romulans, right? Right. Which kind of goes back to this, like, Vulcans having this very logical understanding that when it's important to show strength, mm -hmm. uh, which they used in Discovery in the Vulcan Hello, the idea that mm -hmm. the Vulcans would immediately attack Klingons because they knew it was the only way. Um, and so the, the idea that Spock... Spock is not a pacifist, right? Uh, like Spock is somebody who believes that you, it is okay to act uh, offensively l to create defense long-term. Right, <laughs> um, right. But yeah, when you watch Strange New Worlds finale, you will see Ethan Peck sort of changes the way he plays Spock to be much closer to Nimoy, which I think mm. is really interesting because it shows the range of what he's capable of doing, of being a slightly more emotional Spock towards the cage, and now he jumps ahead and does a really stoic, uh, you know, we must attack. Weakness is something mm -hmm. we dare not show. I think it's just really interesting. Um, yeah, it's funny if we get to like seven seasons worth of Strange New Worlds and we actually see... Like, oh, was this maybe the thought all along that you start off with Ethan Peck playing Spock, like, as in the cage, and then by the end of it, he's more in the vein of of Balance of Terror or something. You know, like, it's actually an arc of the character as he becomes more Could be. in the classic tradition. Well, I, I talked to Henry Alonzo Myers and, and Akiva Goldsman, the two showrunners of Strange New Worlds, a lot before the finale, and they both were like, we're not jumping ahead to 2266 again. Um, and that we can do we have six or seven years to play with and that each season doesn't have to be a year. Right. You know, so like uh, Henry Alonzo Myers was like, we could have a season be 10 days. We could right. have a season be a month. We could have a season be half a month. We could have a season be half a year. Um, we could jump ahead two years, you know. So they mm -hmm. have a lot. And even in the original series, you kind of don't know. I mean, right. the only episode of the original series that takes place in 2265 is Where No Man Has Gone Before. Mm -hmm. We have no idea <laughs> between Where No Man Has Gone Before and the, like, you know, the Corbomite maneuver or whatever. Um, you really don't know uh, what um, happens in there. There's a huge... Uh, and then, of course, you know, the original series is only three seasons, so then you've got... You know, there's a five-year mission, you know. Five-year mission, really, exactly. We got like two. We got like two and a half years of a five-year mission, right? You know, something like that. Um, so I think that, I think that Strange New Worlds could probably go on for a really long time, and they can play fast and loose with the way the characters look. And um, you know, when they jump ahead seven years from twenty-two fifty-nine to twenty-two sixty-six in the Strange New Worlds finale to catch up with Balance of Terror, they don't. They don't try to make Ethan Peck look older or anything. Right. Right. They, he just plays it different. <laughs> you know, he well, just. Well, Vulcans he just, are kind of angelous anyway. I mean, they. That's right. They live for hundreds of years. Um, but yeah, so I think that the, the, the big. This is one of my favorite parts of this episode where Kirk really. Um, Kirk is okay with taking like just this huge risk um, of like being near this comet or whatever to sort of like find the Romulans. And um, this is something that. Uh, Kirk has to suggest to Pike in the new uh, version hmm. in Strange New Worlds, um, which sort of um, is interesting. Uh, but the Romulans are also sort of like on to Kirk in all situations. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Kirk says here, he did exactly what I would have done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, Kirk is sort of like in in the Romulan commander's head. Now, this I love. He says, lay down a pattern fire blindly. This is something that no other Star Trek captain would do. True. Kirk is just, he literally says fire blindly. And yeah. that's something that when I asked 
Goldsman and Myers about what was the difference between Pike and Kirk in Balance of Terror versus Strange New Worlds, they said, you know, Kirk was quicker. He was hmm. a lot quicker and he was taking a lot more risks. Hmm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And then, you know, when I asked Anson Mount, um, I did a long profile for Anson Mount, uh, with Anson Mount. He said that he felt like Pike has a little bit more heart than Kirk. And um, hmm. so Pike tries for a ceasefire with the Romulans, which of course, backfires. <laughs> because, as, because as much as this Romulan commander wants to have a ceasefire, does not want this to happen, uh, the rest of the Romulan Empire feels feels very differently. Right. Kirk definitely has, like, a more um, just government behind him. Uh, he's just kind of trying to um, preserve it, right? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, well, they had Spock talking a minute ago about uh, how the Vulcans used to have the same kind of expansionist view that humans did. Um, and now, presumably, they have evolved past that and they, they are no longer looking to expand their empire. But the Romulans clearly are. Yeah, the Romulans are not really... The, the Romulans don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what's, what's interesting, though, is, is as the canon has gone on, is the Romulans are also super careful. They wait to see if it's going to be worth their time right. to start a war, right? And what Kirk proves to them is that it, it, it's not going to be worth it, mm-hmm. um, is that, th- that you know, this might actually get a little dicey. Um, so they decide not to invade, whereas in the Strange New Worlds version, Pike takes a little bit longer, Pike tries for a ceasefire, and the Romulans decide that the humanity is weak. Right. Um, and so and then they start a full-scale war, and then that timeline, of course, cannot happen. And, you know... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because it's kind of it's very city on the edge of forever, right? Like, if Kirk right here were to try to make peace with the Romulans, um, it would be the right thing to do, but it might be at the wrong time, right? You know, and I think that that's like Star Trek loves to have like that kind of um, I don't know moral ambiguity. Certainly. You know, Kirk's Kirk's not really acting morally, right? He's just acting mm. strategically, right? Um, he's just living moment to moment in this episode, um, and it really is. Um, a big episode for Kirk. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. There's Yeoman Rand, Peter. It's, I hate her so much. That <laughs> ah, kills me. Look at that. It's, it's, it's so pointless. It's just like, she's just there just to like hang off Kirk's shoulder. That's, <laughs> like, God, give me, give me a fucking character, not just like a girl who's a piece of, I mean, I had to, ugh. <laughs> I'm sure she's well, very nice in real life. I don't mean well, she has, just, as written. Great. I feel like she's incredibly weak and just Roddenberry just indulging his own fantasies. Well, Grace Lee Whitney had a very hard time in the set of the original series and was uh, had a you know had a lot of, had a hard life. So I'll yeah. stick up for her in that way. And I think that she's she's good in um, I think she's good in the final scene of this episode um, where Kirk is sort of talking um, about Tomlinson dying. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that I think that Grace Lee Whitney does some nice work there. Um, Steady course one eleven. Well, it's just a question of how much she's given to do. Yeah, no, no, of course. Yeah, as we're gonna see here in a, mi- I think it's in a minute. We haven't gone past it, have we? The McCoy speech. We haven't. No, no, we haven't, no. That's actually no, that, further that's along gonna, than you think. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like people forget. Yeoman Rand is there first, and she tries to to engage with him. And she just can't do it. And it's like, yeah, because sure. you just can't do anything in the entire show. You just, it's just, it's, 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 I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. But I just, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. <laughs> I love that the, I love that Mark Leonard, uh, I'm just going to call him Mark Leonard. I can't, I can't call him the Romulan commander every time. He doesn't, I think he got a name later in canon. I don't remember what it was, but um, 
I love that he's got this old mentor that he's really sad about. <laughs> it just is mm-hmm. like a lot of work that's done very subtly, and you could see on another type of show or an, even a different episode of the original series that they might not have might not have taken that time, you know, to develop this like other relationship to mm-hmm. really humanize, to really make us empathize a little bit with the Romulans, and then you know later they simulate a body being from an explosion, and you know that that means the Romulan commander put his the body of his dead friend, you know, out there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's literally on one set, right? And they're, yeah. they're doing all of this. It's very much like a stage play. And I think, to your point, it's like, I can't think of another villain in the original series specifically that is quite as fleshed out. You know, like, yes, you could say Khan, but, like, I think a lot of what we know of Khan is from Star Trek Two, and then we from kind of retroactively, Khan, yeah. retroactively put it into, uh, well, into Space Seed. But I think this yeah. episode, like, this guy is... is you really feel for him. Khan, Khan is almost not even a villain in Space Seed in no, a way. No, no, no. You know, in, in a sense, he's, uh, you know, Kirk feels sorry for him at the end. He's kind of yeah. like, well, this guy's out of, he's a man at a time. Like, you know, he, he acted the fool. You know, let's just give him his own plan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like yeah. Kirk, Kirk, Kirk kind of, like Khan is almost like wrong, wrong place, wrong time right. in Space Seed. And the Wrath of Khan, Khan is a villain. I think the Romulan commander in this episode is is very, um, he's a foil for Kirk. And I think he's mm-hmm. a better foil for Kirk than many, many, many um, characters. And th- th- there's a deleted scene from this episode where Kirk actually salutes him. Really? With an actual physical salute. You can find it online. There's images of Kirk saluting him with his hand. Uh, which, of course, is a little weird because this guy did blow up, you know, star bases with Starfleet officers on it. And we saw Hanson die and all that. Um but they play up. They play that up in Strange New Worlds um, in a quality of mercy because they make Pike really empathize with the Romulan commander, and that the Romulan commander tells Pike outright, "I tire of war," right. um, which we know that this guy does. You know what I mean? We know that right. from Balance of Terror. He says it. You know what I mean? He doesn't. He he says, "I wish for destruction before we even go home." You know, before we reach home. Right. Um, you know, he's really sick of. Um, you do wonder what other wars the Romulans are fighting at this point, like what other wars he's tired. <laughs> They're not with the humans. We know that. So, like, what other wars is he really sick of? Um, You know, they they had to learn to hate the Klingons at some point. So, yeah, uh, that's probably some of that. There's a good meme that's going around. That's the the classic meme where there's the the guy who's got the girlfriend and looking at the other girl, and then it's the the meme is that is um the Romulans are the guy, the the the. Uh, Romulans looking for allies is the guy, and then there's the Klingons of the girlfriend, and then the other girl is, o- is other Klingons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like different Klingons. They're right, always right. <laughs> trying to team up with the Klingons, whether it's in you know Enterprise Incident in the original series or in uh, was it Redemption in the Next Generation where we find the Romulans are uh, cling- teamed up with the Klingons when yeah. Sela is uh, yeah yeah oh yeah the the, the Duras yeah. <laughs> so they make a they make a big deal in Strange New Worlds about how Spock is the only key to peace with the Romulans, which is something that I think is really cool. And so in the Strange New Worlds version, spoiler alert, um, in an alternate version of Balance of Terror, Spock is killed um, while trying to effect repairs with Scotty with the, to the phaser control room. And then, of course, Pike is told by a future version of himself, uh, also played by Ensign Mount, wearing the monster maroon from, uh, from the Wrath of Khan, that... Um, you know, Spock is the only 
way that the uh, Federation can make peace with the Romulans, mm -hmm. um, which essentially is true. Uh, from uh, the next generation, Spock starts the peace mission on Romulus. Right. So you could argue that Spock's obsession with the Romulans starts right here. Hmm. Um, that he is, you know, sort of curious about them and why they are the way they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I it, it's funny. I think that it is tough to believe that Spock didn't know that nobody on the planet Vulcan were like, oh, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> we had these guys that, 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 that this whole group of people left the planet um, a long time ago, and we just don't talk about it. Um, could it be the Romulans? No, no, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don't I mean, the hope it. is, I, I hope what, what Strange New Worlds gets to, and I, I, you know, and what I think the original series really had very well was that space is very big. Yeah. And, and the idea that, like, you sometimes just lose track of people, it, it's, a st it's a very true thing of, of the human condition, mm -hmm. and it would absolutely be true for other cultures, too. I do love that Kirk is laying down in the middle of this. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> just taking a rest, yeah. He's just like, this is too much. <laughs> I, also, I mean, I just I just love the fact that, like, Grace Lee Whitney's absolutely there to fuck him. And oh, yeah. he's just like, no, go away, please. <laughs> I just don't, <laughs> I'm having real thoughts here. Take your... <laughs> and then he, he sees McCoy, who's, who's like, hi, I'm actually here to talk about your issues. And Kirk's opens up to him. This yeah. is a great scene, though. It's this so is just a it's wonderful... It's, it's, a, it's such a great scene. It's so... Um, people really give Shatner a hard time. He's really great in this. Yeah. Do people give him a hard time? I think this episode... I think he's great in the whole series. I mean, it's... Uh, but this episode especially, he's... He's fantastic. People do give him a hard time, though, for, for overacting and, you know, for that really specific cadence of his, you know, taking sure. pauses. Sure. I, I would just I would have hoped that that would have been from some of his later performances. Um, yeah. Not 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 something like this. This is such a good, but this is such a nice. Something I saw him say to him. He says calls him a customer, which is a little reference to Boyce in the cage. Um, yeah, I was about to bring that up because it feels it, it's it's oddly a fun bit of symmetry. Is that like this scene and arguably this episode? It's kind of a definitely picking up ideas that had been explored in the cage and then to yeah, have mm -hmm. that then strange new worlds come back to this as a way to do their finale with pike is it's kind of a fun little full circle well aspect. essentially this scene is 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 telling you that kind of kirk is in a unique position retroactively we now see this as a scene where bones is saying you are the only guy you know for this job at this moment and then what they do with Strange New Worlds, and uh, Anson Mount told me this, is that you know they don't say it outright. Right. They don't say outright that that Pike was the wrong guy. Um, but there's a scene at the end where Pike gets to know Kirk, and he says, you know, tell me about yourself, Jim. And what Anson Mount told me is he's like that is the moment of Pike knowing that he was not the guy for the in the moment, mm -hmm. and that that's okay. But it's not going to hit you over the head because if you've never seen Balance of Terror then you might not even understand that. Right. But Pike now under, and Pike has never seen Balance of Terror. <laughs> um, I love this scene where Spock accidentally sets off the the alarm, and it genuinely oh, sure. is an accident. Yeah. And yeah. then, of course, Styles is like, oh, you Romulan spy. Yeah. I love that. I love that because it's so great. Like, it, it, it's such a subtle thing. Like as a, as a, like a, you have to be like, oh, that actually was an accident, Spock. But then you go, well, was it? Is Spock a spy? Yeah. You know, like, um, I love that. Um, but yeah, I um, 
the idea that Kirk is uh, this is singularly um, suited for this particular moment is really interesting because you never think like, oh, balance of terror. It's this hugely pivotal p- point in the Star Trek timeline, but it is. It's they're yeah. saying that the Romulan War could start. Right. You know, the 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 last line of um, the James Blish. Uh, version of it is the second Romulan War was over, but it had never even begun. You know, like, yeah. is that the idea that, like, that there could be this intergalactic war, and it just depends on what Kirk does. And it yeah. gives so much weight to what he says to Bones, like, what if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. It's not just about the Enterprise. Like, he's, <laughs> you know, he's thinking about everything. Yeah. Um, so I love that um, I, when I talked to Akiva Goldsman, I said, you know, were there other original series episodes you you guys wanted to redo? for Strange New Worlds, and he was like, eh, we bantied about a few, but they settled on this one because they felt like the stakes were so high. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true. They're, they're, I mean, the stakes are always high in the original series, right? But um, they're like as high as they are in the newer shows here. Right? right? Like in the newer shows, it's always like every season of Discovery, like the galaxy's going to blow up. Right. Every season of Picard, <laughs> the galaxy's going to blow up. Balance of Terror is actually like that in its stakes, which is interesting because the Strange New World Season 1 is actually not like that. Right. Um, Strange New World Season 1 is most of the stakes are relatively, you know, um, lower episode to episode. So then amping them up to this sort of classic episode is really is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was just chuckling to myself, imagining if they had decided to remake that animated series episode with the pink cats. You guys, you guys remember that? One? The, the, <laughs> was it the slaver weapon? I think it was. <laughs> the, the, the Kazinti. The Kazinti, yeah. yeah. The Kazinti, um, the, uh, creations of Larry Niven that ex- yeah. uh, exist in Larry Niven's uh, uh, known space series. Michael Shabone put a Kazinti Easter egg in the Picard episode Nepenthe. Um, yeah. Riker talks about them being on the planet that he lives on with uh, uh, Troy and their daughter Kestra. Yeah. And Shabone actually emailed Larry Niven to ask him if they could if they could use the word again. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they're 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 lurking around there. Those cats. Um, you know, I, I keep wondering <laughs> if I should uh, try to get Larry Niven on the show. He, he I don't know. He feels I mean, it feels like he's a little tapped out of. Uh, he doesn't need well, to do interviews. Well, I mean, Shabon so like, yeah. said he wrote him an email, so that I yes. don't know what that right. tells you. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, um, you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, uh, they're really he and Goldsman, uh, you know, who co-created uh, Picard with Kirsten Beyer and Kurtzman, um, and of course Goldsman now doing Strange New Worlds. Like they're huge TOS animated series nerds, so they're mm-hmm. always shoving in, <laughs> you know, everything that they can in terms of. Yeah. Uh, all the lighting and the and you know with um even in Picard there's like twenty Gornet Easter eggs or something like that <laughs> in season one <laughs> like they're just always really subtle but there's a lot you know yeah, yeah. there's like uh, screens and the word Gornet will just appear on the screen for like three <laughs> seconds just... and then of course now the Gorn are back in Strange New World yes. yeah. yeah hold opposition anyway back to your back to your point about balance of terror though you know i i feel like what also is so great about that scene which we passed was was the existentialism on the part of of kirk you know and i think it, for me i feel like that's really what bones is talking about when he's saying like you know don't kirk don't kill the one named kirk it's like his own ability to introspect you know and and to wonder what's what's right or what's wrong it's it's the weight of a captain but it's also it feels very unique to to kirk in that sense it's like he has mm-hmm. the ability to project his actions outward and um, 
maybe that's why he doesn't go crazy like all the other Commodores do in the original series. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you always got the sense that, like, if Kirk didn't have... I mean, that's a good point. Like, if Kirk didn't have the friends he had... Yeah. I think this is maybe true of a lot of the other... That's a good theory. I like that. Like, okay, is Janeway stable because she has good friends? Right. Like, if she, and like if Janeway had kept that first officer that she had had in caretaker or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that one guy. <laughs> I don't know. Would that have worked out? Maybe Chakotay Pro- was. Probably not. Probably not. I'm just thinking of someone who was like the bones. You know, you'd say, oh, the doctor in Voyager is bones. But like Chakotay is kind of bones for Janeway, right? I feel, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah. like uh, I, love the, I love this as a kid for some reason so much. Phaser coolant seal danger. Like the fact <laughs> that like, the, like phasers are so hardcore that there's like pink gas coming out of a box that's inside of another room. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. don't even go to the phaser. Like, I guess it's the phaser coolant. But I, as a kid, I was always like, oh, it's phaser energy. Just, It's just blinking out. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, is Uhura in the driver's seat yet? I love it when she takes over. Um, yeah, I think kid, she I just did. Like, that's yeah, great, that's, yeah, this is so cool. This is such a, oh, a, good, what a shot. great shot. It's a good shot. What yeah. a great shot. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, I love this. This is so Wrath of Khan, right? Where like Spock's, yeah. Spock's just like, here I go. Yep. Gotta save these people. Gotta and save the course, day. And of course, this this parallels what Pike uh, will do in the Menagerie off screen. Is that right, he right. saves people. Um, and of course, Spock can survive this because he's a Vulcan. Um, which as a kid, I kind of knew. Yeah. Right? Like I wasn't worried about Spock. So you're like, oh, Spock's going to be okay. Um, but it's still pretty awesome that like Spock has to go in there and like be the one to fire the... You know, he's going to take out the Romulans. Spock is not a Romulan spy. Right. You know? Yeah. You know, it, it, unintentionally, it's the perfect setup for Wrath of Khan where he's not okay. Right. And yeah. like you hope he will be in Wrath of Khan, but then when he's not, it's like, oh my God, it's that extra, extra gut punch. Yeah. Well, Nicholas Spire was very inspired by Balance of Terror because he felt it had that nautical sure. kind mm-hmm. of feeling and the, the cat and mouse between the Romulans and the Enterprise is very similar to the Reliant <laughs> and the Enterprise in Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Look how this is such a patient moment. I feel like that this just, you know, it's patient and 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 you know it's sad. Uh, uh, pacing wise, do they do they mimic this in in? They uh, do. They do okay. it beat for beat. Uh, the new actor who plays the Romulan commander gives the exact same uh, speech in another reality. I could have called you friend. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is in, in the Strange New Worlds version. Now there's a whole Romulan fleet that has shown up because they've heard that these guys are trying to make peace, and they're like, we're not having that. Right. So in the new version, the Romulans destroy um, their own ship mm. and, then, oh, wow. and then turn on the Enterprise and say, you know, you guys are next. Um, so they, 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 they amp the stakes up in a way that, of course, Balance of Terror is successful because it doesn't do that, right? right? Like, it stays kind of small. So Strange New Worlds goes the other direction, but they do it as a cautionary tale, right? They're saying mm-hmm. Pike tried to change the future and this was the result is that balance of terror didn't happen the way it was supposed to right <laughs> you know yeah um, I, always, I always love shit like this it's just those enemies who who you know so this would have been brotherhood where, near the end it's, this, yeah. is where Kirk, okay. this is where Kirk would have saluted him in the yeah. deleted scene gotcha uh, right there. I'm glad they didn't have it but oh. it, it definitely sounds like a nice nice little it, uh, it would have made sense on paper I guess uh, yes I like, I like the way it is now yeah. I like the way it is now a no. lot more yeah, yeah. um uh, this is a great little scene here. Um, I allowed a trained navigator to return to duty. 
Um, like Spock just never is going to acknowledge that he likes this guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saved a trained navigator so he could return to duty. <laughs> Capable of <laughs> You're just useful feelings. to me. Yes, <laughs> he's just like he's like. Listen, buddy, I work with you. I don't. Like you. <laughs> 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 um, it's funny because Styles is kind of trying to like apologize <laughs> in that moment. Oh yeah, Tomlinson. Um, yeah. See, Star Trek is so known for these episodes for episodes that end with all of them laughing on the bridge, you know, slapping each other's knee, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. This is just one of those great um is where she tells him, Starfleet Command will support any decision you have to make. And Kirk kind of is like, Okay, well, I've already made all the decisions. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I love that look he gives them. He's so hot in this. Shatter is so he's great. He's so, yeah. But as a kid, this always really bummed me out because they win, you know. Yeah. And Spock is okay. And then, you know, she lost her husband. Right. Yeah, and I, I think to your point about the difference between Pike and Kirk, is like Kirk lives with this stuff, right? And like what we know about Pike is it weighs heavier on him, mm-hmm. you know, in, in ways that uh, it kind of doesn't. I mean, it does for Kirk, but it, it also like... He kind of is able to to bear these responsibilities. Kirk, and, Kirk, uh, Kirk brushes it off a little bit more, you know. And Anson, yeah. yeah, Anson Mount said to me that he felt like Pike was the captain that he wants to. He said if Picard will be known for the intellect, and Kirk will be known for the kind of braggadocious kind of uh, you know um, guts, that Pike will be the heart. Yeah, and it is interesting because the idea there is then Pike couldn't have remained captain forever because mm-hmm. you yep. needed kind of somebody because Kirk is like he's not cold here. But he's also kind of like, I, I got nothing to say. Yeah. I got nothing, you know? And then that's how the episode actually ends, you know? And I think that's such a... Again, like, if you're thinking about, like, a little kid watching this, you know, it's like they win, everything's fine, cut. No. There's an extra scene where Kirk has to go say, you're, you know, your fiance's dead. You know? And, like, that's... it. it and I don't know. It's just... It's so... Um, it's such a gut punch. And then Strange New Worlds, they invert it. And they have the bride has died. And the... And, and the... Um, and the and the groom has lived, and the pike kind of has to like grapple with that. And is this? The, I feel like this is the only time where they they go to end credits and you see directed by, written by there, as opposed to at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, it's right, in the it's like, in season one. It's like that because is the it all the way know, through? Oh wow! I, okay. The reason I know that is because if you watch City on the Edge of Forever, the last part says written by Harlan Ellison. Oh wow. Interesting. Yeah, so that right. the writing credits, you're, but you're right in, in that later on, the writing credits are earlier in the uh-huh. episode. But then the original, in the, in the season one, they're, they're towards the end. Uh, um, I wonder if, I, I imagine that had to have been like a guild thing that happened because it became an industry standard, didn't it? Yeah. It, uh, I, I, that would, you would know more about that than I, but I do know because I've seen City on the Edge of Forever a lot <laughs> <laughs> that, that it's, it definitely says twice. written by Harlan Ellison at the end. Yeah, right. but like, d- but anyway, the point being is that I love how it you see Kirk walking down the hallways afterwards. It doesn't just cut immediately to the you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just instead, it said it's like you watch Kirk have that sort of like somber walk through the hallways, knowing that some yeah. of his crew are never going to come back. You know. And yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, there is a flippancy with the red shirts later in the show, but I feel like that that episode does a really good job of saying, even with the Romulans, right? That this was a person that he was friends with. Yeah. These are people that I was marrying at the ep- beginning of the episode. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like a silly, it's like a silly way to start an episode. Scotty is giving her away, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then, and like Spock is then like, hey, Kirk, uh, some shit's going on in the neutral zone. And it's like, oh, all right, we'll perform the wedding. Everything will be fine. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I kind of, it, it reminds me of some of the better moments of the next generation where like in Data's day, mm-hmm. they have a standoff with the Romulans, you know, and then, yeah. you know, all of that is happening, but then all, you know, there's a baby being bored and Data's learning to tap dance and that life has to kind of go on. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that about Star Trek because it's such a, um, it's such a useful thing to take with you, right? To say like, life is happening, these things are blowing up. You know, there's terrible things happening around you, but you can also continue to live your life and you yeah, know, you can try anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, you can try. It's something I think Star Trek, as we see here, it's like the people in phase of control had no idea what the hell is going on. There's right. there's like right. someone said fire. I guess we have to sit, hit fire now. And I think right. the point being is that like some it doesn't do any good for those people to know what's happening. The point is they have to follow the orders and they have to get their job done and they have right. to live their life, as you're saying. And like that's you know, at times it's important to to be active in the world. At other times, it's important to just do your thing and and lay and, in your quarters and wait for the yeoman to call on you. If you know <laughs> what I mean. I kind of in my in my version of it, and I think it's because of the cage where Boyce brings in the martini, the little teeny tiny martini that he's making. Very tiny, uh, very tiny. the tiniest martini. Uh, who wants a warm martini? I was like, <laughs> no one. Um, <laughs> Uh, I said that to my wife like a couple years ago. I was making like, I was like, who wants a warm martini? She's like, why are you doing it in that voice? What is that <laughs> that you're doing? And I was like, oh, you and know, the cage, the Star Trek episode, you know. But um, I do. She in my, walked out of the room. Right? In, my, in my head, she probably doesn't even remember this. In my head canon, like, um, Bones brings drinks in to that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a mathematical probability. Oh, here, let's have a drink of Jameson. You know, like, um, <laughs> you know, um, I always, I for some reason in my head, I always think he, they're having drinks in that scene, which of course they're not. Um, but I think it's just because of the cage. But I don't know. I like those little scenes. In, in Strange New Worlds, they've done this thing where Pike is frequently having like some whiskey. Probably mm-hmm. sorry and Brandy, actually, I should say, more specifically. But in many, at the end of many episodes, he's having like, a glass of what looks like brandy or whiskey. And it does make me feel like Pike needed that Bones character. Yeah. You know, in a way that he didn't really have, you know, because he finds out in, you know, in their their version of Balance of Terror, Spock dies. And then Spike, and then Pike's like, I can't let that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and old Pike is like, you really can't let that happen because <laughs> Spock, <laughs> Spock's really important. Um, but I think that, um, it it's so great to think that like Kirk and Spock and Bones and Uhura and Scotty, their friendships were part of what how they survived. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's an interesting idea. Um and I think that the next generation in Voyager and DS9 have certainly suggested that and discovery to an extent too. Mm-hmm. You know, where you're like, if these exact people at this exact moment together, you know, like a superhero team kind of. Like, you know, like, oh, what if the X-Men didn't have Cyclops? Well, we'd right. be fucked, you know, or something. <laughs> you know, like, I, I think that there's something about that with, um, as much as I love Strange New Worlds, and I do, we all know that in 1965, a version of Star Trek with Jeffrey Hunter and not a diverse cast, you know, would not have worked, you know? And you yeah. can't imagine Balance of Terror with Jeffrey Hunter. You just can't, you know? You know, it's funny. I mean, it's like I feel like of the the original series, thinking about could Jeffrey Hunter have been in these episodes, I feel like there's only three or four. And like, I think Balance of Terror, for me, I think Balance of Terror is actually one of them. But most of them, you're absolutely right. I don't think 
the series would have worked. And, you know, in, I mean, we were talking off camera before about the motion picture, and I think that was kind of Roddenberry's attempt to kind of reinsert Jeffrey Hunterism, you know, the idea of Pike as a captain into Star Trek. But, like, the fact that that movie has only recently found a strong audience, in, and yet it took Wrath of Khan, I think, to really be like, oh, right, right. The family, right. Well, the connectiveness, that's really what Star Trek's about. And, uh, you know. Well, something that Anson Mount said to me that I thought was really cool um, when I was talking to him about, like, how Pike is more of a reluctant captain mm-hmm. than Kirk. And I was like, well, what is that about a reluctant hero? And we were talking about Joseph Campbell a little bit, right? You know, about call to adventure, resisting the call. Right. And I was said to Anson Mount, I was like, well, why do you think that that works, though? And we always talk about we always talk about it, right? Like right? People talk about how it has to happen in the hero's journey structure, but why does it work? And Anson said that he thought that it just demonstrated humility. Right. And I thought that was really cool because Kirk does it in this episode, right? But Bones, what if I'm wrong? Yeah. You know, like, because if you don't have that moment, then the episode plays differently. Yep. Mm-hmm. Then Kirk is kind of just an asshole pressing buttons. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I thought that was really interesting because I feel like that Anson... In in a way that I I think that he's nailed something that's that was similar to the way that Shatner played Kirk, even though Pike and Kirk are like totally different characters, right? I just feel like that he's nailed like you have to find this like specific emotional switch. Kirk is always trying to quit too, you yeah. know what I mean? No more beaches to walk on, you know? Like he's, <laughs> you know, like he's always trying to, you know. The difference being is I think that Pike in the cage and you know, even in the J.J. films, you get more of a sense that Pike is a character that's kind of like, ah, I don't have to do this forever. Right. Where Kirk is kind of like, this is it. This is all I'm ever going to do. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you know, I hit yeah. that with the films when they say that, you know, even that he shouldn't retire and be an admiral, that really just being a captain is what he should do for the rest of his life. Regarding <laughs> Kirk, yes, yes. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, you know, I think to your point about the uh, partly also Jeffrey, uh, not Jeffrey Hunter, um, <laughs> Anson Mount has has uh, 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 resonated so well with with the entirety of the fan base. I, I feel like there's an element of him as an actor having gone through his career as he has. You know, he ha- he wasn't a twenty something mad success, right? He's he's mm-hmm. struggled and he's refined his art, and so there is that kind of like world weariness aspect of it that resonates with with us as fan as as fans in a way that you know frankly i mean uh uh what's his name fucking so um the guy who played new han solo oh alden ehrenreich alden ehrenreich uh for me and i think for a lot of fans out there it just didn't quite connect because we were just yeah. like this kid's never struggled a day in his life and it's it reads <laughs> on his face so well and that's just yeah. not what we want we I, want harrison ford who's like oh yeah he's Worked as a carpenter, he's down in six packs of beer every day, and he really yep. just doesn't give a fuck. Well, Anson Mount, <laughs> Anson Mount's uh, career, if you're interested in taking a deep dive on Anson Mount's career, as I have done in my preparation for several interviews I did with Anson Mount, um, he was in a great film called Crossroads with Britney Spears, um, <laughs> which also, which also he, is the love, he is the love interest. In Crossroads, he's a wow. main character oh, with boy. Zoe Saldana, with Zoe Saldana, uh, future Uhura, uh, as well as Kim Cattrall. So it's a yeah. whole Star Trek um, Crossroads. Uh, I also watched an <laughs> episode of Sex in the City from 1999 starring Anson Mount, um, in which Kim Cattrall, of course, is also in. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was slightly better than like 
um, some episodes of Discovery season two. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> and I only say that, I and I'm a huge Discovery fan, and people know this about me. I love Discovery, and Discovery season two is Anson Mount's oh, first season, which is why I make that joke. Um, but the reason I say that is because the episode was really tight. It was like uh, Charlotte and uh, Carrie and Samantha um, go, they pretend to be younger than they are. Mm. Um, so Charlotte is uh, dating Anson Mount, who's like a puka shell wearing like beach guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's pretty good in it. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. But I, I, but I love, but I love the idea that someday you could have Captain Pike time travel, or maybe just living on Talos Four, you know, in his telepathic world as Anson Mount and meet. Kim Cattrall's Valeris, you know, older hmm. or something like that, and then they yeah. could have a a crossroads and uh, uh, Sex and the City reunion, or you could just get Britney Spears <laughs> on just Stranger Britney Worlds. Spe- yeah, I hear yeah. she could use the work these days. So I think that's the answer. <laughs> just, I think Britney Spears on Stranger Worlds is the is the move. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 sounds like it. it sounds like it. Make that happen, Paramount. But yeah, Star Trek, Star, uh, Sex and the City. Uh, yeah, I would I would recommend, and you know, the great. Uh, um, Darren Starr, the Sex and the City creator, uh, uh, also did Emily in Paris, which has a massive prime directive metaphor hmm. in its second season. So I think that there may be something in the in the ether that connects these things. Um, I can't prove that. Well, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think probably my first conscious experience of Anson Mountain was in Hell on Wheels, which is a great series. We're call meaty. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's... Uh, uh, doesn't get talked about enough. I think it, it kind of it was on AMC in a time when AMC was still trying to like redefine what it was in kind of the latter part of Mad Men era. Um, but it's a really well done show. And, it's uh, great. Um, I actually rewatched like the first five episodes of Hell and Wheels really recently, and it's really good. And yeah, Anthony you know, it takes like, it takes a minute to find itself. I think, but it, like once it does, it, it starts clicking. It, it's it, funny because I almost was like he could have done Han Solo at that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, like 10, 15 years ago, you're almost like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> you know, like, because he has that really, like, world-weary, even though he's a lot younger than he, I mean, you know, it was 2011, I guess. It wasn't that yeah, long ago. Yeah. But, I mean, that's significant considering it's 2022 now. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, so, and you know, he's, Anson's gray hair is, like, very much his thing now. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah, the so, hair, uh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, the hair is the hair is a big deal. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he 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 was like he was like oh, I don't care about the, that's all the stylists. I don't care about the way I look. I hate shopping. Sure, I hate sure. sure. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He does come across <laughs> as the kind of guy where you really don't think that he. You really get the sense that he like his biggest complaint about Star Trek is that he doesn't like being inside. Because he doesn't like sound stages, and that he wants to do because they did Hell on Wheels, which was mm-hmm. outside. It's a lot outdoors, yeah. And that he's a big outdoorsy guy, and so I think that they. So I was like, you guys should just do a season like Lost in Space, where you're just like on one planet all season. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like crash the, the, the Enterprise the on Park planet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, Ryan, I don't know. You, you'd probably know this. Do they do they film in LA or are they in Toronto with a uh, along they're with in, They're in Canada. They're in a different. Um, they're in a different studio than Discovery. Okay. But but they are but they do not film in L.A. The only contemporary Star Trek show that films in L.A. is Picard. It's Picard, which yeah. uh, because um, presumably because Patrick Stewart uh, requested that. Yeah. Presumably, um, I mean, like I, presumably, I don't actually know if that's actually the case. But I mean, I know that some aspects. I mean, nothing with Patrick Stewart, as far as I know, is filmed 
anywhere but in LA with Picard. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that was a consideration. Like, like I like, like he's eighty, you know, like Hanali yeah. Han, Han, Pepper, uh, who directed the first three episodes of Picard season one. It's a really great contemporary TV sci-fi director. She's really, she's all over the place. What was she just directing recently that I was like, oh, she directed that too. Something really good. I want to say For All Mankind, but I don't think that that's right. Um, anyway, she's a fantastic uh, contemporary director. Um, she was like, yeah, we wanted to go to France for Picard season one, but yeah. they, didn't let, they didn't let us. <laughs> I wanted um, them to go to France but, too. I mean, Picard, <laughs> but Picard is interesting because it was filmed a lot outdoors this year. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And even in season one, it was filmed outdoors a lot. And there is something about Star Trek going outdoors that I do think... I think Anson Mount's kind of onto something. The episode we just watched is a bottle episode, right? It's all yeah. claustrophobic, which is very yeah. much the Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan, one of the greatest Star Trek films of all time. It's very, it's inside. There's one outdoor exterior scene in the Wrath of Khan, which Nick Meyer didn't even shoot. Yeah, oh, which is right. um, yeah. which is Fox Casket, you know, yeah. you know, which was shot in Golden Gate Park. But yeah, I don't know. I do think that Anson Mount is right that you that Star Trek is this like you know you're in a tin can spaceship fighting Romulans, but. You know, at the same time, the original series is running around on the shore leave planet and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as Lisa can talk about uh, personally, when you when you get to go outdoors, when these cast members are able to go outdoors, it somehow just expands everything so much, you know, and there's, there's this sense of grandeur to it that uh, you don't always get when you're just filming on a cave set for the... 15th time. That's <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really true. And I think that it just has a different vibe about it. I mean, it's it has more of an explorer type of feeling, you know, I mean, when they're all in the ship and when it's on, you know, a bottle show, then it definitely has that submarine, like you said, that tin can kind of feeling, you know, but when you get the sense that they're going out into the universe and exploring and and meeting new races and going to new places, then I think that is really well served by actually leaving the sets. Yeah, it's it's so. I mean, you have like Vasquez Rocks and things like that nearby LA that that is very well known in mm-hmm. Star Trek lore. But like, oddly, I feel like a lot of new sci-fi too. When they go just outside of LA, it all kind of looks the same though now too. So like, yeah. I, I would want them if they were to do that with Strange New Worlds, take advantage of Canada in the way that. Well, they they uh, did it just, a bit. You know, yeah. they did they did it a bit in the premiere because he's Pike's riding horses in the snow and stuff. Yeah. You know, I just think that Anson and Mount wants year old wind turbines and yeah. I think Anson just wants that that all the time. You know. Yeah. Lisa, when you were when you were writing for Trek, you were probably kind of discouraged though from writing episodes that happened outside. Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the the cheaper you can make it, the better. And of course, it costs a lot to to go out on location. It's really. For the for the crew, I mean, it's it's fairly disruptive, you know. I mean, they they have kind of their set routines and a, and a very controlled environment on the sound stages. Whereas when you go out, even you know, to Griffith Park or Vasquez Rocks, you know, you're losing control of the environment. Yeah, and Lisa, we watched that great episode of Enterprise. Uh, 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 what was that called? Uh, Carbon Creek, right? Where they mm-hmm. went up to Crestline, and my mm-hmm. God, that episode just looked twice as expensive as every other episode. And yeah. there's no reason for it. It's just they're just on location <laughs> and yet it just, it just yeah. the entire world looks so much bigger on that and it was beautiful beautiful mm-hmm. were there any of your episodes Lisa that you were like you had to scale back out exterior stuff in like an early draft or where you got to do you know was that like did you ever like was there any specific ones you remember where they were like no don't do that. Or were you like, <laughs> did you already kind of know? 
Well, I think the, the one that comes to mind is actually Hippocratic Oath, which was the Deep Space Nine that I wrote, because that takes place mostly on a planet. Um, and so that, those are always the tricky episodes because, again, that's, you know, the more you get outside, the more expensive it is and the more different sets you have to build. And so for Hippocratic Oath, you know, Bashir and O'Brien are down on this planet and there's a lot of run and jump and chase, which, you know, theoretically takes place in like, you know, seven or eight different places. But we had to do it, you know, of course, with the cave sets. And then they had, you know, built sort of a jungle set that had to double as all of these different jungle locations and, you know, crash the shuttle in the middle of the jungle set. And that one, I really felt, you know, had we had the money, it really would have benefited from from having more different locations and having more more variety for the action sequences. Yeah, it's just something I was thinking about a lot after I talked to Anson, because I was thinking about how I, as a fan, really connect with all the indoor episodes. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because it's kind of what Star Trek is, you know, at, 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 a lot of the time, in that the, the sets themselves are very comforting and yeah. like you know even Kirk's room felt very cozy in the mm-hmm. episode we just watched you know I want those orange sheets I've never been able to find them <laughs> um but yeah I do wonder like from a writing perspective because like when I'm writing fiction I'm never thinking in those terms so it must be so difficult um as a screenwriter you know on Star Trek um on any version to when be you like have to think, well of course we, we think practically even when we're breaking the story you know sure, we wouldn't we wouldn't come up with a story that had to go to a lot of different locations and, you know, we're very aware of, uh, you know, where we are budget-wise in the season. You know, do we have a little extra money to spend? Do we have to cut back and do a bottle show? That sort sure. of thing. And so actually with, this, with the short stories that I've been writing for Star Trek Explorer magazine, I have uh, purposely been writing really expensive stuff. You know, things, <laughs> that, <laughs> things that we could not do. You know, I have aliens that have four arms and we go into this town square and they're full of aliens. And the one I'm writing now has like these flying aliens. And so I, I definitely want to do a sort of expand a little bit beyond the bottle show. A decidedly not Balance of Terror episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny because Lower Decks is funny to me because they could do more of that. And they yeah. do, right? Like they, they do do the crazy alien planets or whatever, right? But they still, to like stick to the Star Trek aesthetic, most of the episodes take place on the Cerritos, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I just think that's kind of funny that they... It's, I mean, I know that, I know what Mike, and you know, not that animation has like an unlimited budget, it's still right. hard to draw all that stuff, you know, don't get me wrong. But I, it is interesting to me that, that that is like a, I don't know, I've just been thinking a lot about this tension between like loving the Wrath of Khan, loving Balance of Terror, and then being like, and yet, I would like to see more open fields and vistas, you know, yeah. in Star Trek, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was something, uh, George Lucas talked about in relation to the first Star Wars movie is that like he wanted to show a dogfight in space. And today mm-hmm. everyone's like, well, what do you mean? We just got done watching Avengers Endgame. It's like, well, back then <laughs> they had never had such a thing before. Yeah. At the yeah. best, you had something like Balance of Terror here where it's just like stationary ship moving Starfield that you have to believe it means the Enterprise is moving. And then mm-hmm. you would see uh, uh, some, like a torpedo fire. And that's it, you know, and it's like, that was your idea of a battle. And yet, yeah. uh, the idea of having like an animated three-dimensional dogfight was something so unique in 1977. And, and you know, that's something that Star Trek's still having to negotiate. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder like what Star Trek's best location shoot was, you know, like just thinking about the opposite. Because we could, we could debate the bottle episodes forever and Balance of Terror would probably be like number one, you know, in many yeah. ways. But I do wonder, like, if there's a, if there's a good, because I think that Abrams was, you know, smart in the the 2009 Trek, right? There's a, 
lot of exterior shots in that mm-hmm. movie. You know what I mean? Even when they're inside the Romulan ship, it feels like they're outside. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's because they're at the Budweiser facility. He, no, no, no. That's the, that's, that's the, no, that's oh, the no, yes, that's no, no, the no. I remember the Romulan ship with the giant yeah. platforms, like, right, like Skele- right, right. Skeletor's castle or something. Like, it's, like, <laughs> cr- yeah. it's like Kroll inside of it the really Romulan is. ship. In, uh, yeah. In a, the 2009 I prefer Cromwell, personally. But. <laughs> well, I like the first JJ movie, but I just mean that I, I, whenever I watch that movie, I always think, and it's actually Into Darkness kind of suffers from this, is Into Darkness is inside a lot more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, I really love how outside Beyond no, it, and the 09 film are. It feels you know, like, it's like a, what they a couldn't do on picture. the shows, right? Right, <laughs> like, exactly. You know, like, um, and I think that like even like that fight on the, even if that was done on a set, that fight on the platform where Sulu's killing Romulans with a sword or whatever. Right. Like, that's great. You know what it I mean? Was, that's a it great, was. and uh, it's the kind of thing that, that you don't, you're, you're trying to think about TNG episodes that had that, and it's kind of like Riker fighting those pirates in Gambit, like <laughs> wherever that park is, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, you know, um, or like the first episode of Caretaker or Voyager, Caretaker, where mm-hmm. like, that looks really great, you yeah. know, when they beam down to that, the K, the Kazon planet or whatever. Um, Wait, what planet is that where they get... Uh, the the caretaker's know. world? I think it's actually Ocampa. It's Ocampa, right? Because that's where they get cast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I I, lo- I always I, I remember when that came out and being like, oh, wow, this is a pilot episode because they're like outside. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so you get a bigger budget for those. Yeah. It's something to think about. I just, yeah, I'm I trying know. to think. I mean, I, I guess... Maybe Time Zero? It's not a location. I think it's just the back lot. I love Time Zero, though. That's a good good call, yeah. It just looks so expansive. And I'm sure that must... I can't imagine they built all that just for Star Trek. I'm sure it must have been, like... Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, like... I don't know, maybe a reuse. Well, <laughs> I mean, insurrection is all outside, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is interesting because then it's like, <laughs> but, that, but that's like what we were saying a second ago, like first contact, right? We, and I mean, they have all the stuff on Earth with Zephyr Cochran and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But the majority of that film, again, stuck inside, you know, fighting yeah, the Borg interior. and the yeah. Enterprise. Very and, you know, small. sure, they go, in, they go in, um, in the spacesuit scene or whatever, but, you know, that's very claustrophobic as well. I feel like maybe yeah. we would have to look at like maybe Deep Space Nine. Like, just in the sense of, of like, you know, even though it's not really location work often, but it just feels bigger. You know, there's just more actors, there's more background cast. There, the it sets feels are more big. Like I a, mean, the promenade the was bigger. what? Isn't the yeah. promenade like one of the biggest sets ever? Yes. In yeah, like a, yeah, I think it might of still hold of the record, all TV shows, yeah. not just yeah. Star Trek. Just yeah. like, it, like, yeah, I mean, I, I so, I mean, that's got to be, that's up there. I mean, that, that definitely, that, that feels like a real place in a way that maybe like sometimes like, some of those sets in astrometrics, astrometrics, right? Yeah. Was the Voyager yeah. set? Yeah. Like oh, that feels like another room, you know? Like that's <laughs> kind of like it's kind of like a discovery where they're like, here's another lab, and it's like yeah. okay, whatever. It's like the same room, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like Strange New Worlds they made a really conscious choice not to do that. Like the engineering set is really big. I mean, part of it is the AR wall, right? Like all these yep. shows are you doing what the Mandalorian did is using the AR wall. And I talked to Bruce Horak, who plays Hemmer on. Um, uh, the Enar character uh, plays Hemmer Hemmer on Strange New Worlds, and he said, "Yeah, the AR wall just changes everything." Yeah, you know, because they can really do the they can do these outside and the penultimate Strange New Worlds episode episode nine is all on this ice planet that's and mm-hmm. also a craft spaceship, so they get to do interior and exterior on a budget. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, so. the hope is that it really that really benefits uh, the way things are shot. I will say, oddly, I feel like the Mandalorian looks great. I actually thought. 
Boba Fett looked terrible. And I, I wonder, I, I don't know what the difference is because it's theoretically the same thing, but it's like, I feel like there's still some kinks to work out in terms of I don't like, know. I, 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 something Lisa said, right? At, maybe it was before we were recording though, but Lisa, you said that you felt like Strange New Worlds just visually looked really good. Yes. And I think that part of that for me is that because they've actually just created a new aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Like they've used some of the Discovery silhouettes, like Bernadette Croft, who's the Strange New Worlds costume designer, was like, we used... The Discovery silhouettes, they have the bigger shoulders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Anson Mount and Ethan Peck are, like, on the Marvel diet. Like, those guys are yeah. both like Daniel Craig. They're huge, you know. <laughs> but their uniforms have the Discovery silhouette. But nothing else about the aesthetic of the show really is borrowed from Discovery, right? It's yeah. like, it has its own aesthetic. Even the Enterprise Bridge, they redid. Um, uh, uh, Tamara Deverall designed the Enterprise Bridge for Discovery Season 2. You were... Uh, you were you weren't there, Peter, when I was talking about that. So they they even redesigned that a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. But I think that relative to Boba Fett, I think the problem with Book of Boba Fett and some of the Star Wars shows, to me, is that they keep trying to recreate the same aesthetic from seventy seven and eighty, right? Right. Whereas at least with Star Trek, they're always kind of trying to make a new aesthetic. Like if you didn't like the Discovery aesthetic, then it's like okay, that's fine, you know. But at least it's different. Yeah. You know, like the same with Next Generation. Like, you know, that wasn't trying to, you know, like, and every single iteration, and now Strange New Worlds is like, yeah, it's, you know, it's supposed to look a little like TOS, but it also doesn't look like TOS. Right. And it also doesn't look like the JJ movies. And it also is kind of its own thing. And now it has its own sort of visual language. And even Picard, right? They're like, okay, these are what the uniforms look like. And Seven of Nine is going to wear a leather of, leather jacket now. Yep. And like, that's going to be something you're going to have to deal with. And like, <laughs> I love all that. And I I, lo- I think that just aesthetically, Enterprise making the uniforms look like, you know, NASA jumpsuits. Um, Star Wars just is always trying to, other than the prequels, where George Lucas actually opened up the color palette and did a lot of weird things and created a lot of new costumes. And, you know, other than the prequels, all other Star Wars, even when it's good, like Mandalorian or Obi-Wan, is just always trying to recreate that exact aesthetic that existed for like three or four years. Yeah. And I just think that Star Trek is a little bit braver with aesthetic. And I'll just yeah. say that. And I just think that like, even in like, they did they redid this Balance of Terror episode. Well, they were like, okay, we're not going to make it look like a fan film. We're not going right. to put Pike into a 1966 uh, velour shirt. <laughs> You know, we're going to just do it with our aesthetic. And they're going to make the Romulan commanders, like, little sash look a little different. Right. You know, I don't know. Like, I just think that, you know, Bernadette Croft is really cool. Like, she was just like, she views the original series. She's called it a wild inspiration. Yeah. She was like, it's just like a wild inspiration to see what they were doing with the fabrics then. And, you know, they just take that and they just try to do something new with it. And I don't think that Star Wars does that on TV. I don't think that Star Wars is trying to say... What would Star Wars be like if they actually took risks the way that Star Trek has done with just costume design? Yeah. You well, know, I would and, hope it would actually be good. I think it's just indicative of this idea where they're like, this aesthetic was perfect. Yeah. And then, and, which maybe that's true. You know, it's kind of like Blade Runner 2049, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, like you know, it was like, it split the difference, right? Yeah. Like, um, but it's like, in, in a sense, it's almost like he did a better job with Dune because he was able to take some more risks, I guess. Right. You know, with the aesthetics. I don't know. And I think that that's my, that's my only complaint about the new Star Wars shows overwhelmingly, is they just kind of look like a low-budget version of a Star Wars movie. Yeah. They, they do, unfortunately. And it's you know. like, it's, it's, it's something that bugged me a bit with uh, 
some of the early Star Trek too is, and going back to what I was talking about in the introduction, it's like there's this overwhelming need to like reference older stuff. And I'm like, you guys can still do, you know, Strange New Worlds, uh, but do it in a new way, do it fresh. And it sounds like that's really what the show has done. And there will come a day where I do watch it, but it's it's the problem with like the book of Boba Fett or Obi Wan, where it's like you're not actually saying anything new here. You're just right. saying the same thing again and again, and and that comes down to a um, a stylistic choice as well, which is like whereas something like what Villeneuve did with Dune, it's like he is this is clearly his film, yeah, yeah, and David Lynch's film is clearly David Lynch's film, right. or you know. The De Laurentiis is filmed, whatever you want to think, but it's like <laughs> allow yourself to be an artist in this situation. Don't be dependent upon the IP. Well, to turn I think I think that they did that. You know, I was talking to Davy Perez, who wrote uh, several of the big episodes for Strange New Worlds season one, including the episode nine, which rebooted the Gorn. Right, mm-hmm. and now they're like the Gorn. Spoiler alert: Episode nine, Strange New Worlds. The Gorn pop out of people as in Alien. Yes, right. They're saying, and so like that's new, right? Oh, like they're yeah. like, and, and they're just kind of like deal with it, you know? <laughs> and, like, I think that that's something that Star Wars would never do, Yeah. right? And exactly. I think that the only sort of defense I have of that is that, like, Obi-Wan is interesting to me because it's kind of like Pike in Strange New Worlds insofar as it's like, well, the stakes are only emotional. Right. Because the stakes for Pike are not, the stakes for Pike are not physical. The stakes for Spock in Strange New Worlds are not physical. In the same way that Obi-Wan's stakes in in Obi-Wan Kenobi are only emotional. So then it, then it just becomes about it's a bit more literary, I guess, right? Huh. That it only becomes about trauma. Um, yeah, but straight- like it, it would have made sense in that situation. Had like from what we've heard about the movie, it sounds like they were able to hit the nail a lot more on the head with that. Whereas in the in the TV show, it just feels it feels very soft, and it's it's like they're not quite willing to go there in the extreme sense that they probably should to really land that note. Instead of which, it's up to us to be like, yeah, it's about trauma and it's about all this stuff. Yeah, it's like, I guess that, I guess that, yeah, I guess that's true. Yes. And I will say that in, a, in that sense, Strange New Worlds goes the other direction and is really like, remember Captain Pike, this character that it's appeared for like 45 minutes a long time ago that <laughs> didn't even speak the next time he appeared? Um, well, now, you know, I think that the nice thing about Pike is that he now, I mean, Anson Mount's now big in Pike for an entire season of Discovery. That's like 14 episodes Strange of season worlds. two. Yeah. An entire season, so that's like 24 episodes, right? Mm-hmm. So Pike's now been... Mount has now been Pike for 20 hours. You know, that's like way more than he is, and Bruce Greenwood, whatever that was like, what, like five hours total? You know, so he is now definitely Pike in a way that no other recast sure. legacy character has been able to really uh, take over the role. I mean, you could argue James Frain as Sarek maybe a little bit in Discovery seasons one and two because he yeah, like is, he's he's in it a he's in it a lot more than you remember. Yeah, he's in a lot of episodes. He's even a mirror Sarek mm-hmm. <laughs> in season one. Um, but I think that Mount Mount's Pike obviously is a main character, so he's made a a bigger impact, um, which is tough. You know, Ethan Peck has been Spock for way more hours than Zachary Quinto, but I think that he'll still get compared to Zachary. Yeah. Because of the because of those the the how popular those films were. Which I feel sort of is unfair. Um, yeah, but Zachary but Quinto me, was yeah. really good. I mean he, he was, is good. He, was yeah. he was dead on as yeah. Spock. And so I uh, I mean comparing it to to him, I think it's 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 t- big shoes to fill. It is. It's tough. It's tough, yeah. Um well, that is that is all I, I I've said a lot. I will say that you guys should get this old James Blish book. At least I'm maybe you have some of these already. 
the old oh, one. I, I, I don't I, think I, I have that I, one I now. Have it, I have it. Yeah, this it's, it's first, a great. great this is the first one. This first Star Trek book ever published. Oh wow! Um, because it was in '67 fi- fiction, of course. There was the nonfiction book making of Star Trek. Um, but yeah, these are wild. Um, Charlie X is called Charlie's Law. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will man. actually like the alternative factor if you read those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, and Arena's great. The Gorn has a tail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's great. Um, it's fantastic. But the Balance James, of Terror James was really Bush, good. I thought uh, it really captured it. James Bliss famously uh, hated Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Well, he you, was not a fan. <laughs> you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know that from his extremely warm forwards in every single one of those this volumes. Is this is true. And you would not know it from the fact that his wife finished adapting them it was Star Trek 12 or the, whatever the volumes were um, so you wouldn't know it from the books he, he, um, he definitely put in the work and it it, it, yeah. it, it, it shows but he uh, he was I think bitter about the fact that he was not as well known for his original stuff as he was for this, these uh, yeah. these uh, uh, adaptations um, well the, the counter to that is I talked to Norman Spinrad for my my book uh, for Phasers Unstun who wrote the Doomsday Machine who, of course, was like a Nebula and Hugo award-winning novelist, and he was like, yeah, I'm known as the guy who wrote the Doomsday Machine. I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, it's fine. He's yeah. like, I enjoyed it. He's like, I had a good time with Roddenberry. We were friends. It was great. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> anyway, uh, Ryan, we've been talking here for twice as long as the episode was on, so it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's been fantastic, though. Um, you know, in the last two weeks, what's been what's been happening? What's new? What's on the uh, What's on the agenda for you? I just was, you know, I was really focused on covering the end of Strange New World. So I was, um, I interviewed Anson Mount for Esquire, which was a huge opportunity and was really fun. Um, and that was really great um, to be able to talk to a Star Trek celebrity for like a really mainstream magazine and sort of like view him through a, a slightly different lens. Mm-hmm. Um, like not just how like fans think of him, but how like if you've never seen Star Trek and you don't know who Anson Mount is, like here's who he is. I got to do that. That was really great. Um, yeah, and I got to just talk. I got to really dive deep with Henry Alonzo Myers on the on the finale, and I really like him. Um, he was one of the producers on The Magicians, hmm. um, which was a show that's based on books by my friend Lev Grossman, who's one of my great friends um, and a mentor of mine, and I was just so delighted. You can really see the humor that, uh, that they took, um, that Henry took from his work on Ugly Betty as well, um, and the magicians, and and kind of in, inserted into Strange New Worlds. So I, that was really fun. Um, yeah, I'm researching my Dune book, um, and that's really challenging. <laughs> um, and uh, that's that's what's going on with me. A beginning can be a very delicate time, right? Yeah, very delicate. I know. I, I, I noticed I don't your know if joke ever there. Told yeah. <laughs> no, I noticed your your ending is a very delicate time uh, Thank joke. You. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Lisa, I know you got a new short story out. Uh, you want to give it a quick plug for that? Uh, well, I had uh, in the most recent magazine, it was uh, a, a story with the Voyager cast. Uh, I'm sorry, um, the Captain Proton story was the most recent one. And uh, I'm actually writing a story now for another uh, Star Trek Explorer magazine with the Next Generation cast. Ooh. So that's kind of what I'm working on these days. Very nice, very nice. Awesome. D- didn't you write one as well, Peter? I, I did indeed. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it is uh, for the digital exclusive uh, uh, issue. So if you pick it up uh, through digital sales, or uh, or if you even check it out through uh, the library app, uh, which you can get Explore Magazine on there. And mine's all about uh, Will Decker and Ilea, and I chronicle uh, their first meeting on Delta Four. So if you ever wondered what what happened, I there, I can't wait to read this. I am going to try to endeavor to 
get a short story in Star Trek Explorer magazine. I have the, old, the, old, the only Star Trek fiction I wrote was for the role-playing games, the ah, Star Trek Adventures. Yeah. They asked me to do some sidebars a couple of years ago, and so I did, like, log entries from Ro Laren mm. and, like, um, Tuvok. Fun. I did, like, Tuvok writing a letter to Janeway, like, before he goes undercover. Yeah. Um, so I was tickled when I got the book, you know, the, you know, the, the role-playing game. It's like, and there's Tuvok's letter to Janeway. Like, I'm not sure about this. I don't know what I wrote. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I was, oh, I wrote a letter to, uh, I wrote a letter from Roe to Chakotay hmm. warning uh, him about Tuvok. Oh, interesting. That Roe Ro is like, mm, no, <laughs> Tuvok is not, Tuvok, like Roe would have known that Tuvok was a double agent. I would. I want to do a Star Trek Explorer magazine short story. You guys have me inspired. That's fun. Yeah, you know, I'd actually invited the uh, fiction editor to come on to this episode because I thought it would be nice to do a big roundtable. Uh, unfortunately, he's not feeling too well, so it's yeah. uh, it was tough. But he's a super nice guy, and it's um, maybe we'll have to play a little, you know, have a have a meet cute moment on the podcast sometime. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we'll do like what introduce. not what not to pitch. Like there don't you go. pitch these stories. You know. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, anyway, listeners out there, uh, thank you very much for being here. Um, if you'd like to connect up with us, you can find us on Twitter at uh, TrexpertsBR and on Instagram at TrexpertsBriefingRoom, where we post behind-the-scenes images and uh, let you know about upcoming episodes. Um, we're going to be taking a bit of a break here soon. We're going up to a season finale as uh, you take a bit of a breather. Um, I have a nonfiction book of my own that I have to finish writing, and, and Lisa has probably a few scripts that I have to get done here in the next, over the summer. So we're going to take a bit of a hiatus here. And uh, Loki, of course, has to uh, take a nap. Yes, he does. Very important. He's the hard worker of the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, thank you so much for being here. We will return uh, for next season and bring you some more awesome and exciting commentaries uh, for Star Trek because uh, we love doing this and we're going to be here as, even if you guys aren't. So, we'll, uh, <laughs> so uh, for all of us here, uh, I want to say thanks very much for being here. I want to thank, thank everyone at Electric Entertainment, including uh, executive producers Dean Devlin, Mark Elman, and uh, producer Natalie Muscali. And our sound engineer, Mark Rivera, for making us sound good. Um, and until next time, uh, thanks for being here. And the briefing room is now closed. Mr. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened, as if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.